Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey, everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits. And today I'm joined by the founders of Adespresso. Massimo Ceruti and Armando Biondi. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. So Adespresso is essentially a SaaS product uh, for managing and optimizing and automating Facebook ads. And over the years, the company grew to become the world's number one Facebook ad tool and was acquired by Hootsuite in 2017. And this is actually the first time that I have two founders on the show. And how did, how did you guys first meet? Um, we met many years ago at this point at one conference, one of the first iterations of the Web Dublin Summit, um, if you remember, which is not even called that way anymore and not even in Dublin anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was, you know, um, kind of where we met in person. We've been knowing about each other for a while before that, because of course, you know, Italy such a tiny country so every italian in tech knows every other italian in tech pretty much yeah yeah that makes sense and you guys were both in a similar sector uh, massimo you were a tech journalist and armando you were a radio host so in a similar similar world of tech media and uh, after you guys met did you guys remain as friends or more as like colleagues i think it's always been a mixed relationship of work and friend. Uh, so it didn't change that much after the acquisition and just got closer, you know. Got it. Okay. And Armando, what was what was your first impression of Massimo when you guys met? Um, well, I was fairly impressed back then uh, by the, um, the product that they were developing as a light, you know, little side project. It was already called the Espresso. It was tiny in size because you know Massimo at the time was running his own um, agency and so you know this was born out of their need to actually have something that could you know solve a problem that they had uh, back then uh, so they they already you know were doing a pretty good job uh, on that side which we further expanded when we you know spun off the company and started building and growing at especially as an independent you know, business in the US mm-hmm. So Massimo, you were before at Espresso, you were running a marketing agency called Creative App, as, as Armando mentioned, and you guys were running a lot of Facebook ad campaigns for your clients. And uh, essentially, you saw that it was, it, it was just a headache to, to manage everything. So you decided to, to automate all of this. Was the initial goal with Ad Espresso to build a product for you guys to use internally? Or was the, was the plan from day one to, to have a standalone product? Now, the plan was anyway to to build a standalone product. We were a mix of marketing plus development. And, you know, the usual agency love-hate relationship with customers. But at that point, we were really in the hate phase. So we were really looking for an opportunity to, to get out of the agency consultancy business. So it was a perfect mix of solving a problem. But also getting the opportunity to pivot the business. 
And how did you build the product? Like you, you, you mentioned you had developers internally. Did you use those resources or did you have like a CTO right away that, that was building it? Yeah, that was a very lucky position to start a company because basically we had all the knowledge internally. And, and that was probably also critical to success that a lot of the team members of Adespresso were actually people that we had been working with for a very long time. So there was a very strong trust relationship with the whole team. And once you had that first product, uh, what was the launch like? Like we had no idea of how, <laughs> how to launch a product until, <laughs> until we, Armando joined the team because we, were, we knew that Italy was not the, the goal market because it's such a small, tiny market. Uh, but on the other side, we really had no idea of all the uh, fundraising part, uh, um, launch, etc. So uh, the, the launch really happened when Armando joined forces with us and joined the company. Uh, it was totally critical to that part. Okay. And once Armando joined, uh, was that kind of the point where you guys started looking at accelerators or was it, did, did some time pass after that? Yeah, for sure. Um, and to some degree, that was also a way for us to validate the market, right? One of the things that you do when you start a new endeavor is you want to make sure that there is a need for what you're doing. And so, you know, to some degree, you validate that with customers, but also with, with investors. Um, and of course, you know, 500 Startups was a great way, particularly as, you know, an international founder to, um, you know, get a foot in the door with the Silicon Valley. And so, you know, that's why um, we were curious of um, seeing whether we could be part of that batch. Plus, I was also already in the network uh, with my previous technology company as well. So that, that helped. Mm -hmm. And that, that's actually what I was going to ask is, uh, I think it was two years prior to going through 500 startups with Adespresso, you went through, I think it was the fifth batch of 500 startups with your previous oh, company yeah. called Pick One. Um, so was the main motivation behind going through the second, uh, through 500 startups the second time around, uh, kind of the help with the launch, like all the PR that you get and the, the validation from uh, maybe within the, the batch mates and the access to capital yeah um yeah for sure and it's also one of the things that you know i've understood that does very well um still to this day is the focus on go to market um and there is you know this thing which not a lot of first-time founders you know know or realize but you know the best possible product with kind of a, you know shitty go-to-market strategy is actually not going to win versus like an okay product with a great go-to-market strategy, right? So um, go-to-market is actually a critical piece of how you build a company. And so, you know, for other startups, having a good focus on that always um, helps founders, you know, think in that framework as well. So, it, you know, it's a great learning experience besides the things that you mentioned, you know, the access to a broader network, and access to a broader capital, um, availability, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And when you got into the seventh batch without espresso, uh, Armando, were you in Silicon Valley at that time already, or did you both move for the for the program? Yeah, uh, I've been living here at this point for like almost eight years, um, so I was I was in San Francisco already. Mm -hmm. 
And you wrote a very interesting piece uh, a few years back called Sorry, but Italy is no startup paradise, uh, where mm-hmm. you analyzed the startup scene in Italy and you contrasted it with Silicon Valley. How is the startup scene in Italy now? Uh, it's better. Um, you know, one of the things that you see um, as one of the macro trends that we are experiencing in this particular, you know, life cycle stage of technology and in general, you know, economic cycle is that there is um, the biggest availability of capital that, you know, you ever saw ever in the history of, you know, humanity pretty much. And so uh, you see on one side, this materializing within San Francisco and the Silicon Valley ecosystem with the biggest rounds ever, the bigger the biggest fund ever, you know, the soft bank of the situation that come in and, you know, put uh, half a billion check like it was, you know, pocket change. Uh, but on the other side, you also see um, other non-tier one uh, hubs uh, starting to have um, capital and angels and funds. And so, you know, that's true for Italy as well. Now you can raise, you know, 250, 250K, maybe even up a million uh, with the relative ease, it's not easy, but it's easier. Um, and there are also um, some funds that are also, you know, there is some ecosystem. So some kind of a food slash supply chain for when you need to raise a bigger round. Um, and that is not some degree special of, of Italy. It's, it's kind of um, a behavior that you see emerging in uh, a lot of places. Um, at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I have, um, I, I guess, somewhat of a similar experience with, uh, with Silicon Valley in a sense that I'm Ukrainian. I was born in Ukraine. I spent mm-hmm. uh, more than half of my life in Canada. And then I came to San Francisco uh, because in my mind, that was the mecca for startups. Uh, like the, mm-hmm. the Silicon Valley is, is essentially where every startup has to be. It's like, if you're not there, you're like a fish in a forest. And um, I spent a lot of time, when I was there, I spent a lot of time thinking about what makes Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley. Like there's a lot of mm. uh, places in the world that uh, try to replicate Silicon Valley and try to be the new Silicon Valley. But so far, really, there's only one Silicon Valley, at least today. Um, mm-hmm. why, wh- what do you guys think makes Silicon Valley the mecca of startups? A mix of things, probably. <clears throat> uh, Armando, for sure, has a more structured view on this. Uh, from my point of view, it's just that everyone is there and that kind of network, talent pool and presence of all the companies, it's, it's fairly unique. Every other, other country, no matter what we do, uh, they miss some part of the equation. For example, here in Italy, as Armando was saying, the situation is getting better. There is a huge talent pool, but for example, there is a total lack of big IT company that can acquire you. Mm-hmm. While Silicon Valley is a perfect mix of all the factors that a company needs from the beginning to the end. Yeah, I would say maybe to uh, add a little bit more context on that, of which I totally agree. Uh, Silicon Valley is special because it's a unique concentration of capital, talent, um, legal infrastructure in terms of, you know, sophistication, as well as bigger companies that, back to what Massimo was saying, can, can acquire and, and put back liquidity into the system. And 
what's interesting, you know, another one of the pieces that they wrote uh, is around the fact that Silicon Valley is not that much of a place of, for startups anymore. It's more of a place for, you know, little more advanced type of companies like Series A or, or past that because it's also an expensive place, right? And it's a very competitive place. And so to stand out in an expensive place in a very competitive place, you need to have more traction than the average guy. And so to some degree nowadays, it's actually cheaper more convenient and you know less competitive to get to I don't know zero to half a million maybe a million dollars in revenue and or funding and then you know expand your um, your scope to some degree and and move to the valley and have more of a global uh, perspective um, and back to what you were saying as well you know the fact that there are many places trying to be the next Silicon Valley the reality is that you know the next Silicon Valley is going to be Silicon Valley. Because at this point, mm -hmm. there is such a concentration of all this thing and such a critical mass, you know, when it comes to talent, for example, uh, people that scale companies, you know, past, I don't know, a thousand people or a million customers or, you know, 10 million, $100 million in revenue. Uh, these things don't happen that often. And the people that, you know, have been there and done that, you don't find them, um, everywhere you find them usually concentrated in in the the really tier one apps of which san francisco is the best example yeah i definitely agree i mean there's there's a lot of benefits of silicon valley a lot of drawbacks uh like you mentioned the the competition and the cost and i think um as, as you described that's sort of what you guys did with that espresso in a sense that you guys <laughs> had a team in italy uh, and then you, you moved for the, the for the best of 500 startups. Did you guys hire people in San Francisco or was the team mostly based in Italy? Completely the team was based. mostly based yeah. in Italy. Yeah. So we had a few people in the US, but in San Francisco, there was only really the founders. Um, and this goes back to, you know, the consequence of, of what we just said around the fact that because San Francisco is more expensive, more competitive and there is less you know more turnover you can actually kind of an arbitrage type of situation when it comes to talent you know talent is distributed and so you can find very very good people uh with you know a lot of expertise pretty much anywhere um and in italy as well and we had you know a bigger um, network in italy so you can find and hire um great people at a fraction of the cost like half of it or a third um, even by paying them very, very well above the local market rates, and they will stay with you for years versus, you know, having to hire very expensive resources and very expensive office space and having a very high turnover um, in, in San Francisco because it's a very liquid and a very exciting marketplace. So that, that's something that I found pretty interesting about you guys is Ad Espresso grew uh, by a large degree because of content. You guys had an incredible content strategy and yeah. uh, the entire team, or at least the majority of the team was in Italy. And I feel like there are certain roles that are a lot easier to offshore, uh, like development and design uh, to a large degree. And you know, I might be a little bit biased because I, I run an agency myself, but I, I would go as far as saying that uh, having the whole tech team in-house is probably not a good idea at all. But there are some roles <clears throat> excuse me, like um, content writers is very difficult to offshore uh, because yeah. beyond the fact that you have to really have a deep understanding of 
the product, the market, what you guys are doing, the value prop, but there's also a certain degree of cultural understanding that you have to have. There's certain mm-hmm. jokes that, you know, maybe find yeah. in, let's say, Italy, <laughs> but people in, in, in the States won't get. <laughs> you know what I mean? Have you guys had any issues with that fact that you had Italian copywriters writing content for the American market? Yeah, that's one of the parts that we never offshored. So uh, most of the content writer has always been US-based. Even for our editor-in-chief is actually Italian, but she mainly do the coordination part. I I would say when we worked with offshore content writer, um, we did it because they were people with extreme knowledge of the matter. So they were either really Facebook ads expert or top of the espresso users. And in that case, usually we relied on them for the quality of the content of the information, but we always paired them with an American people doing uh, the content review. So they would write the draft with the good ideas and then someone else would make it in a very good and readable blog post. Mm -hmm. And did you guys run any Facebook ads at all? Yeah, sure. <laughs> At least to dog food the product. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Massimo, what are your thoughts on like the, the future of digital advertising? Where do you see us being in ten years' time? <laughs> ten years, it's too. It's far, far ahead. Uh, I think the big trends for the next five years, let's say, are artificial intelligence and privacy. Uh, artificial intelligence, because ad tech is becoming a black box. Uh, there are a plethora of startups that were born out of performance optimization, uh, which are probably going to die, most of them, if they don't upgrade their business model, just because optimization is going to be eaten up by Facebook, Google of the world, and the various ad channel, which have access to a huge talent pool in terms of artificial intelligence, and they also have access to the old data set. So I really think that in three, four years, we won't have to bother with audience, what are my keywords, what's my age range demographic, will just tell Facebook, Google, hey, this is my ad, this is the product I want to advertise, and they'll find the best audience for you. And bidding as well, it's going to disappear. And right. privacy is another big trend uh, because, you know, all, everything that is going on with Facebook, but also with Google, all the increasing regulation across the world in terms of privacy, uh, a lot of things that are possible now won't be possible probably one year from now, two years from now. So like third party data, uh, but even conversion tracking will be made much, much more complex. And that's going to change the industry. I don't know how yet. Do you foresee any sort of like technological paradigm shift? Uh, like any maybe new hardware that's going to be released, something along the lines of AR or something like that, that will have a big impact on advertising and marketing? I don't know. But, you know, marketers are very unique animals they they have a great skill at adapting uh, to every new technology or uh, media that can draw attention so that doesn't scare me uh, that much but i think we'll just see more and more mobile and probably the only other question mark is the augmented reality and virtual reality even though it's been like a couple of years now that everyone is announcing that revolution which is not happening and it's not clear yet if 
it's because the hardware is not there, the infrastructure is not there, or if it's just because right now people don't like it. But I mean, if you look at Oculus and other product, it's still gamers and very limited. Yeah, it is improving, but it's not like mainstream just yet. And I would also argue <clears throat> to add again a little bit on what Massimo just said. That while it is true that you know, these new quote unquote you know revolutions are you know taking more time than what uh, you you could think about, it's also true that you know advertisers or marketers don't need um, like a, another major paradigm cha- paradigm shifting on that regard because advertising online advertising in specific it's still to some degree in its early days, right? It has been an industry for the past 10, 15 years, not much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is also true that, you know, back to what Massimo was saying when it comes to automation, we we will see more and more um, the definition of great advertisers change in the sense that, you know, up to now or like, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, the best, um, performance marketers or advertisers would be the ones that, that would know how to put deliverers in you know a most efficient way compared to the average. Uh, that's going to be more and more something that the, the platforms, the, the ad channels, will take in house and become kind of a black box, as as Massimo was saying as well. And what's going to be the role of great advertisers, or you know how you would you will understand if you're dealing with a great marketer will be understanding and knowing you know which data you need to provide to the ad platform to enable them to you know automatically pull those levers you know by themselves and provide you with the best possible outcome for what you're looking for um which is also you know to some degree simplifying you know things always have as you were saying you know upsides and downsides the downside is that you know being a back box you won't know too much what's gonna what's happening, and you may want some visibility in that. The upside is that it would be a significantly simpler type of exercise, so that will open up the market further. And Armando, you do a lot of startup advising and investing. What are some of the biggest red flags or biggest mistakes that you see founders make uh, when they're marketing their product? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I would say two things. Either when it comes to, to go to market and marketing, either spending too much money too soon or not spending enough money uh, for where they are, you know. And it's always about having some product market fit and, and spending some money to validate the the go to market, you know, paid channels and to gather customer feedback. And then as you do that. Um, you expand your efforts and you double down on what works versus, you know, leaving on the table what's not really working. And so you see founders, you know, not doing, not not experimenting, or you see founding founders experimenting too much and finding something that works, but, you know, keep they keep experimenting and they don't really double down on the thing that works. And so they still, you know, keep um trying new stuff, even if they found something that actually is performing, um, or uh, they focus, you know, just too much on, on product and uh, not enough on, you know, marketing and sales. Those are 
very, very common um, things that you see. And I feel like there's a lot of investors that are pretty cautious about startups that are overly uh, reliant on paid advertising or if paid advertising is their main growth channel. Uh, as investors, would you guys agree with that? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I think uh, it really depends on the unit economics and the space. Uh, paid advertising is important. And I think overall you can generalize. I. Uh, I would be very cautious of any startup that is reliant on a single marketing channel to acquire customer because that's always risky. It's just different kind of risk. I mean, paid is more expensive and you could be outbid by a competitor with more money. But if you are doing SEO or content marketing, you are still very dependent on Google and their algorithms changes. So I think the key is always to have a diversified approach uh, where you can pull different levers to, to keep growing and to protect yourself from changes that always happen. Okay. Yeah. The way I look at it is, you know, advertising as an accelerator. So, uh, you know, you have budget and you have something that's working there. Uh, advertising is a way to give you more exposure and you know get more reach um that's that's a healthy way of doing it and then if that's true and you know you have a healthy relationship of cac versus ltv which is you know cost of acquisition customer acquisitions versus lifetime value of a customer uh you can spend as much money as you want as much money as you have uh but you know that that need to be um true as a as a condition yeah yeah i could definitely agree with that that it's it's a great way to accelerate your growth, uh, given the fact that you have a balanced marketing strategy and that you have certain infrastructure in place. Uh, let's talk a bit about the exit itself. Um, Armando, you wrote a very detailed article about how the whole acquisition happened. And I encourage everybody to go out and read it. It pretty much describes everything from A to Z. Uh, but for those that have not seen that article, how did the initial talks with Hootsuite begin? Uh, yeah, it's fun to me because that, that article, I still receive people like emails saying, Hey, I read this list thing. It's awesome. It's like super hard to find anything related to M&A, which is kind of one of the reasons why we wrote it. Right. And, and we've been very open and transparent with the community, um, since the beginning on learnings and things that we, uh, found along the way that we, we thought were interesting for other founders as well. Um, and so M&A to some degree is one of the least understood and least talked about um, area of the startup industry. And there is a reason for that because, you know, it's super rare. And generally speaking, even when it does happen, there is a very, very, very high level of confidentiality around it. And so people are not super comfortable, you know, explaining the details. Uh, but, you know, knowing more about things give you leverage because you know what's going to happen and so you can prepare for it. Um, when it comes to us, um, the MA conversation really came out of an event with, with Hootsuite. We were both at Suster, you know, the SaaS event here in San Francisco, the one funded by Jason Lemkin. Um, and they, you know, we are very upfront. They approached us saying, hey, uh, we are looking into the space. We are um, looking either to partner or to buy a company in the space. Would you guys be interested? Um, and of course, you know, the answer was yes. Uh, so we started talking about, you know, potential MA situation, but we didn't, um, come into an agreement around 
um, price and valuation. And that's when um, conversation turned into a partnership. Um, and then, so we worked at the partnership for about, I think, four to six months. We deployed that. And when we released it, you know, they came back to us saying, you know, hey, partnership is great, but we would really, you know, love to resume that MA conversation. And so we said, great, let's do it. Uh, and, and we actually ended up uh, finding something that worked on both sides. And so we moved forward. And be, between the point where you guys uh, agreed on the kind of the business terms and you received something in writing, like a letter of intent, and the point where the company was actually sold, what sort of things needed to happen between those two points? Oh, a thousand. A lot There is a checklist of stuff, which is crazy. So the, there are, I would say, maybe two main blocks after that, or like three in any M&A. So the, the first block is how do you get to a term sheet or a letter of intent, as you were mentioning. The second one is once that you have an LOI, slash term shit, you know, what happens afterwards, which is generally um, the due diligence phase. And then the third block is, you know, the due diligence phase, you know, coming to an end, and which is essentially due diligence is, you know, looking at the history of the company. So it's really um, looking at the past to some degree. And then phase three is looking at the future, which is, you know, future state and, you know, how um, the relationship is going to work and what's going to be the role of the founders. Uh, is the team coming on board all of it or um, some portion of it? And, and how is the uh, next couple of years or, or three um, going to look like? And 2017 uh, was a pretty crazy year for you, Armando. Besides the fact that Adespresso was acquired, uh, your previous company, Pick One, was also bought out in the same year. How different yeah. were these two M&As? Uh, <laughs> you did your research. Uh, <laughs> so it was significantly different in the sense that, um, and I'm going to speak generally about this uh, versus, you know, specifically about Pick One and, and Adespresso. So the, the thing that makes the conversation entirely different in an M&A context is whether the founder has the leverage or not. And leverage really means two things from a founder's perspective. It is whether your company is growing or not, and whether your company is profitable or not, or running out of money, right? Because if you're running out of money, you know, you have uh, an expiration date, quote unquote. Right, and so you either need to raise more money or get the profitability, or um, you know, money is going to run out of the of the bank account, and so that's kind of a strong forcing function for founders. And the second one uh, around the, the the one before about the growth trajectory, it's also kind of what dictates the the valuation multiple, right? And so the best possible place where you can be as a founder approaching an M and A conversation is. Companies growing and companies profitable or close to profitability. Uh, that's where you know the interesting stuff happens. When you have only one of these elements or or none of these elements, um, things can be good as well. It can be a good MA conversation. It's a more it's a trickier and more stressful uh, type of experience. And granted, MA is stressful at any point in time for any founder that went through it. Any founder I did engage with. 
you know, a few other founders that went through M&As themselves and I advised other founders going through M&A in the past couple of years, it's always a brutal experience. It's kind of the mm-hmm. worst experience a founder can go through. And it's also justified because if you think about it, you know, for the vast majority of the people, you know, the experience of, you know, selling a, a, a car, it's already a big deal. And it's a, you know, few tens of thousands of dollars. And mm-hmm. the next thing is selling a house, which is, which is a huge deal for the vast majority of the people. And it's a few hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe a million bucks. Like selling your company, if you're doing things right, is few millions, if not few tens of millions, if not few hundreds of millions. So for the vast majority of the founders, unless they are like really serial entrepreneurs, it's going to be, it's going to be the biggest transaction of their life. Um, and so, you know, it cannot be anything else than very stressful and brutal experience. So if you can navigate that from a position of strength by having a healthy growth trajectory and by having, you know, a healthy PNL, um, which is, you know, profit and loss statement, you know, how much money is going in and how much money is going out of your bank account. Um, that's even better. Yeah. Yeah. And um, beside the financial side of things, uh, you're also selling something that you've put pretty much everything into for the past five, 10, oh, yeah. 15 years. Uh, Massimo, Sweat when you, and blood yeah, and, and tears, <laughs> and, blood and, tears and, and everything, uh, Massimo, when you first had the idea of Adespresso, so when you were, uh, running a creative web and. Um, you saw that you were doing pretty much the same thing over and over again. So you, you thought, okay, we got to automate this thing. Did you have any sort of thoughts around an exit strategy or ideas of where you could, you guys could potentially sell this idea to if everything could work out? Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> when you, when you start a new business, unless it's a life cycle business, a lifestyle business or a family business, uh, in the moment you are accepting money from investor, you are thinking what's the exit strategy because it's in everyone's interest. So probably not in the early days. I mean, in the early days, we were just thinking about solving a problem. But when we saw that the product was real and we saw that there was interest from people, we immediately started thinking about an exit strategy. And we knew from the beginning that uh, Facebook, Google were not buyers, even for a lot of people thought that we would have been acquired by Facebook. We knew that was that was not an option. So we, we had always been looking at companies, even in the organic space, trying to get in the paid space or marketing automation companies as a, a very likely uh, target for the acquisition. And my last question to you guys is about where do you, where do you guys see yourself doing in the next five, 10 years? So you're both now involved with Hootsuite. Uh, you're also both uh, advisors and startup investors and just very embedded into the startup scene in both Italy as well as in Silicon Valley. Uh, do you see yourself starting a new startup? <laughs> probably you never know <laughs> probably you know one of the things that you know it's very common as well for founders in, in have you know experiencing bigger organizations um is that you kind of always are you know square peg in a round hole to some degree in the sense that start this is another observation that i find very fascinating um which i want to share with you guys so Startups are essentially built, every startup is built on the assumption that founders are somehow special, right? They have some, some kind of special insight or some kind of special commission skills that make 
that startup likely to succeed or make success possible, at least for that startup. While bigger organizations, they are built on the assumption that no one is special because every process, every person, every role need to be um, readily, you know, replaceable when someone leaves the company. And also every role needs to be super specialized while, you know, in a startup, you know, you find all the time people that cover many hats and and are at the intersection of many things, right? While in a bigger organization, being at the intersection of many things and being and being able to wear many hats is kind of an aberration to the system to some degree. And so you see all the time, you know, founders, you know, spending the retention period of their now period within the bigger organization, but then leaving and, you know, going on onto the next thing. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting observation. I feel like people after their exit, they have sort of a downtime, uh, whether it's with uh, the acquirer or advising, investing, but vast majority of the founders, I feel like they, they will start another company again. Um, Armando and Massimo, I want to thank you both for joining. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much. Pleasure on our side as well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.